Ben. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. You can be seated. Yeah, see, you get down before I can say it. Uh, you can be seated, though. We're really glad you're here. Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd ask you to turn or tap your way to 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 10 and 11. We're going to jump around in those chapters just a little bit. And if you don't have a copy of the Bible, we'll have the scripture on the screen for you and would love to give you a copy in a modern English translation uh, if we can. Hey, it's August, and I've always heard growing up the sort of like curmudgeonly types that get frustrated about how early Christmas ads and Christmas decorations go up. Uh, well, I'm now curmudgeonly about Halloween. It's already started. I don't know if you've noticed that the Oreos are getting orange filling and there's costumes different places. And Halloween, we're in August, Halloween is already upon us. And I don't like it also because when that happens, you start getting a lot of ads for scary movies. I don't like scary movies. I don't like to be scared and I don't like scary movies. In general, my life is scary enough. So if I'm going to watch something, I want it to be like dumb and funny. Uh, but when my family gets together and we're all sitting there watching like a baking show or whatever, I definitely don't want an ad for Jordan Peele's Candyman about like a killer with a hook hand to come on and freak everybody out. I don't like scary movies, but they're very popular. And I uh, actually did some research on why. There's a, a group called the Journal of Media Psychology. Journals for everything. There's a Journal of Media Psychology published a study on why it is that people love scary movies. And in the first place, people really just love the thrill of being scared. The physical thrill of being scared. It's an adrenaline hit. That fight flight or freeze moment. People just enjoy feeling that. Whatever. Uh, but in the second place, some people love to watch scary movies because when the movie's over, that thing they were scared of is over. So in a way, it's a kind of cathartic experience. You go watch a scary movie about something you're scared of, and then the movie's over. It's as though you say, I would be willing to have a nightmare for the pleasure of waking up from that nightmare. I don't get it, but for some people, that's their thing. Now, here's, here's kind of the reason I bring all of this up. If you attempt to fight fear that way, good on you. But there are better ways to fight fears. The better way to fight fear is to actually have the thing you're afraid of go away. You're afraid of spiders in the basement. You hire somebody to kill all the spiders in the basement. You're afraid of the house getting foreclosed. Well, we can try to figure that out. If you're able to get money, then that fear goes away. And actually, in the Bible, it talks about things that we are often afraid of. It diagnoses our hearts really well. And it says the most common command in Scripture is to fear not. It commands us not to fear, and the reason that it commands us not to fear is because God solves those fears. But if you were with us for our Proverbs series, you understand that the way in which Scripture does that is by God coming in and being the solution to that thing that you're afraid of. That works if you're confident in the Lord. You know, we talk about being afraid. There is one thing you really should fear. It says in Luke 13, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians, but 
I want to set this up in Luke 13. It says in verses 24 to 28, Strive to enter through the narrow door. This is Luke telling us about Jesus' life. And this passage is Jesus' teaching. So if you have a Bible that does red letters for Jesus' words, these are red letters. Jesus says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he's going to answer you, I don't know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, hey, we ate, we drank in your presence, you taught in our streets. But he'll say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. I don't want to make Sunday scary, but we've got to preach what the Bible says. And what this says is the moment when you wake up, you die, and you... You're in front of the face of God. It's possible that waking up in that moment, the nightmare will begin. We've got to know if you know Him. And, oh, church, we strive to be inclusive. We do everything we can. And the Bible gives actually a lot of leeway for churches to understand their culture and produce an expression of the faith that's intelligible to that culture. So at Hope Church, we go out of our way to explain everything we're doing. That's why I say you may be seated, even though everybody knows you can be seated. You guessed it, and everybody sits down, and I open my eyes, and whoa, they're already down. But I still say it like an idiot, just in case there's one person that didn't know. I want you to know, I want you to have your hand held through this service so that if you're new to a Christian service, you're understanding why we're doing what we're doing. And yet, that desire to make sure that everybody feels really comfortable here falls apart. We can't do it anymore if what we attempt to do runs up against what Jesus teaches See, if we say we're going to be inclusive to the point that we don't tell you the hard things that Jesus said, then we're not a Jesus community anymore. These are red letters. Jesus taught something. He taught this, and we've got to understand it. We've got to look this fear in the face in order to get past it, to get through it, to understand how something like this can be taught, and the most common thing in Scripture is this command to fear not. And honestly, specific um, topic that we're addressing here isn't just salvation. We kind of need to do some house cleaning about the way that we do the Lord's Supper. See, when we take the Lord's Supper at Hope Church, we're doing something very specific. And if we don't teach on it well from time to time, then we just kind of allow some stuff to get assumed. And I'm telling you that what we're dealing with is important. 
whether or not you stand before God and He knows you is reflected in this Lord's Supper moment. It's something that's beautiful and that's good. It's useful. But just like anything that is that good, it's also dangerous. I've started uh, whittling. It's kind of quaint, isn't it? My brother had some old woodland stuff, and he let me start using it. And if you want to whittle, you have to have a knife that's really sharp. And so I, like an old barber of Seville or whatever, I have this little leather strap, and I go back and forth, and I stroop my knife, I think is what it's called. And you get your knife, try to get it as razor sharp as you can, so that when you carve, the knife actually works. But if you want the knife to be carvable, if you want it to actually do what it's supposed to do with wood, you have to get it sharp enough that it'll mess you up if you don't do it right. And I don't know how to do it right. I said I whittle. All I can do for you if you have some project is make wood a little bit smaller. I don't have any like skill sets yet, maybe one day. But as I carve, because I don't know what I'm doing, I have to wear on my left hand a glove that's like cut proof. And I have to wear on my thumb of my right hand a little leather thumb protector. Can I tell you? feels way less cool when you have to put on all the safety equipment to do your little thing. But I've got to because if you want the knife to work, it's got to be sharp. And if you don't know what you're doing, you can kill yourself with it. We get that. Things that are useful and are really good are oftentimes also very dangerous. And the Lord giving us the Lord's Supper, the Lord even coming to be among us and adopt us as his Father means that we are necessarily dealing with things good, but also holy. And if you read the scripture with attentiveness, you'll notice there are times when people step up against that holiness, and holiness wins. In the time of Moses, his brother Aaron was the the priest, and his sons were doing priestly duties. And stepping into God's holiness in a flippant manner... God killed them. The people of Israel who are in God's presence as he leads them often experienced his judgment as his holiness broke out against their sinfulness. It is heaven to be before the face of God. But if we don't have something figured out, then that holiness... It's a problem for people like us. So, when we talk about the Lord's Supper, we're talking about something that the Bible considers holy. It's something that we need to do according to Scripture's teaching. So you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you get in 10 and 11, a lot of speaking about the way a New Testament church was doing the Lord's Supper. A lot of things they were doing wrong, which is helpful to us because those corrections on that church we can receive. And before we get too far into what we're doing and how we want to do it better, I want to just understand what the Lord's Supper is. So 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26, Paul describes, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul describes the Lord's Supper understanding, going back to and understanding its institution when Christ made it happen. It says in 1 Corinthians 11, starting verse 23, For I received from the Lord what also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's saying that this this thing was started, this Lord's Supper was started by Jesus himself. And that Jesus, in starting it, connected the Lord's Supper with his own death on our behalf. Can Can I get you to understand that we're talking about something that's as holy as anything is? How so? Well, on the night when he was betrayed, the night before Jesus gets, or the night of Jesus' arrest, he's celebrating a Passover meal. Jesus was a Jewish man, and his disciples were also Jewish men. They celebrated the Passover, the Passover being a Jewish holiday that celebrates all the way back. It's instituted all the way back when Israel was almost instituted as a nation. It's the moment when God pried them out of slavery, broke the chains of slavery and took them out of Egypt and brought them through this wandering into the promised land. And in the moment when he cracks them out of Egypt, the Pharaoh doesn't want to let them go. So there are plagues, punishment on Pharaoh for not doing as God commands. And the 10th plague, the the worst plague, the most severe plague is death itself. Angel of death is going to come through Egypt and kill the firstborn son of every family, from Pharaoh himself to the lowest slave in the lowest dungeon. And the only way to have that death pass over your family is to take a lamb without blemish or spot, to kill that lamb, to cook it up, to eat as a family, but to take the blood of that lamb and to paint it on the doorpost and lintel of the door meaning that you are covered by the sacrifice of that spotless lamb so that the death angel passes over your house. Therefore, Passover was a celebration of that moment, a remembrance given annually through this feast where the people of Israel would remember God passing over them, providing. They weren't righteous to the point that the angel of death, of course, would pass over. No, they kind of looked like the Egyptians when it came to morality. What they did have was faith. What they did have was a provision. And following that provision, they had the angel of death pass over. What Jesus is saying is, in agreement with what John the Baptist said about Jesus when he saw him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What he was saying is, I am that Lamb. When you take the bread of the Passover and remember... Now, I want you to understand it in its fullness, what God always intended. The blood of sheep and goats doesn't take away sin. That was always pointing forward to the sacrifice where Jesus, the spotless lamb, would be sacrificed to be a blood sacrifice. So that the blood of Jesus, if it covers you by faith, you pass through death. He's saying that about himself. He becomes that lamb. Now that lamb was physically spotless as a way to interpret, as a way to be a metaphor for how Jesus was morally spotless. Never a day living in any sort of rebellion against God. And yet when the time came, though we have sinned and he had not, he gave his blood for us. 
So taking the Lord's Supper is not you saying that you are holy. Taking the Lord's Supper is you saying that He had to die to make you holy. And that's what He did for us. In the institution of the Lord's Supper, obviously happening before He goes to the cross, Jesus called His shot. I don't know if you ever play basketball, but if you ever do, and somebody hits a three-point shot and they hit it off the backboard, they didn't mean to do that. They got lucky. They missed so badly that it hit the backboard and went in, and it actually counts as three points still. You just look like an idiot. Unless you call your shot. If I break your ankles and then I go up and I shoot my three-point shot, which will never happen, but if I do and I say, bank, before I let it go, then you know I mean to do that. Still doesn't look cool, but at least you knew that I intended to shoot it off the backboard. Call your shot. What Jesus is doing in this moment, he is not only connecting what he's doing with the Passover in the most helpful and beautiful way. He is also, again, telling them that he knows exactly what he's doing. And he goes to do it out of love for you. He wasn't just a preacher who got out of line and the authorities came in and just killed him. He came to die so that we can sing, so that we can live. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, meditation on the resurrection. And he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Fast forward to the early church. They're now, on a regular basis, taking this Lord's Supper as a way to remember. See, baptism is how you have this, this starting line of the faith. That baptism is when you declare to the world that you have believed. It's the moment when that internal thing becomes external. The thing that you declare you know about him, that he knows you. Not that you're good, actually, that you're bad and that you had to be forgiven. But being forgiven, that you're now adopted, that you're now his. You declare that to the world through baptism. That's that starting line. You only do it once. Sorry. Several of you guys would be here every week if you could. No, nobody likes it. But it is a good thing, and it only happens once. What does happen regularly is the reminder of what you did. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And that's what the Lord's Supper is. So then, who can take the Lord's Supper? Again, who cares what I think? What does the scripture say about the Lord's Supper? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, it says, The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Taking the Lord's Supper, and I keep pointing to the sides because when we do the Lord's Supper, we do it on the first Sunday of each month. We're going to be doing it next Sunday. When we do it, we set up two round tables here and here, and on those round tables are the elements of the Lord's Supper. When you come up and you take those elements of the Lord's Supper with everything that we do around it, You're declaring that you know him, that he is yours. 
that on that day he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter into my rest. Not because you're good or faithful, but because Jesus was and you have been found in him. He knows you. If that's you, great. If that's not you, well, that's the problem. See, anytime you get a whole group of people together and you say, okay, now we're going to do this thing that all the Christians do. And Josh, with a longer and longer preamble over the course of the life of Hope Church in the attempt to stop people and have them really take this seriously, starts to play and we then do the Lord's Supper. And all of these people stand up to come up and get the Lord's Supper. Now, if every one of you is redeemed, praise God. But also, uh uh-oh. The attempt of Hope Church is to be a place where all kinds of people are coming to engage with the gospel and to think about it carefully. That means there should be some people in the room who knowingly are not Christians. Okay, great. I hope it doesn't feel awkward when several people stand up and come and take the Lord's Supper, but I hope you understand why we would ask you not to take it. I don't want you to play with my wedding ring. This is just a little rubber workout ring. I don't work out, but if I did, this little rubber ring... Would mean I don't scratch up my nice one. But if, if it was like my wedding ring, I don't want you touching it. I don't want you playing with it. I don't want you putting it on. I'm married to Rachel. This ring signifies that. You're not married to her. Don't put it on. The Lord's Supper is an expression that you know him. So taking the Lord's Supper is for people who do know him. So then you think, okay, well, then who would do that? Who would come up and take the Lord's Supper and not know him? I think it's two groups. I think in the first group, it's just people who are deceived. It says the devil's a liar, and he's good at it. I think there's a lot of people who are just deceived. And it's our job as Hope Church to try and push back that darkness. I know that I'm deceived in all kinds of ways. I pray that God would continue to teach me wisdom through you, through the Scriptures. But I also know there are a lot of people that just assume that they are Christians, that think they are Christian. They never really evaluated the question, and they're deceived. They think they're Christians because that's their heritage. That's what their family is. Well, that does not mean that you know him. There are a lot of people that are part of historic movements that came out of Christianity, twisted away from Christianity, and are no longer part of Christianity, even though they claim to be true Christianity. You go through the history of the church, it's all over the place. A couple hundred years in, you get into the 300s, and you have Arius, who is teaching that Jesus was not co-eternal with the Father, that he was created. Well, that doesn't seem like a big change, but it is a big change. You make that one little tweak, and you call everything else Christianity. In fact, you call that the true form of Christianity, and you've instead created a heresy. It may claim to be Christianity, but it's, it's not Jesus as God. It's Jesus becoming God. That's not the same thing. Jesus becomes God. Then you start teaching this idea that you can become like God. Well, hey, go back to Genesis. That's what the devil tempted us with in the beginning. You go into the 600s when Islam begins. Islam coming out of Christianity. Teaching that Jesus is sinless and a great prophet. 
but we would not consider them biblical Christians. Not that they would ask to take the Lord's Supper, but we would tell them not to take the Lord's Supper here. Continue to fast forward through the church's history, and there are all kinds of twistings away from orthodoxy. God help us to stay in orthodoxy. That twisting away, though, still calls itself Christianity. So we have people that come and are deceived about who they are and about if they know him. Jesus wouldn't have taught what he taught in Luke or in what I'm about to read in Matthew if it wasn't possible for people to think they are his. And they're not. So if you think you are a part of the real Christianity and you know that what you believe disagrees with what Hope Church teaches, I would ask you to please respect what we teach enough not to take the Lord's Supper at this church. Now, if you're not deceived, there's a second group that are just proud. The Pharisees had great theology, but they didn't know God. And if you don't know him, don't take the Lord's Supper. If you don't know him, let us talk with you. Let us help you. Let us... Let us make these things clear so that you come to know who he is. But thinking that you know him, if you don't know him, is a problem. Again, what we read in Luke, he said, there are going to be people that will come up and they'll say to him, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But he's going to say, I tell you, I don't know where you came from. Depart from me, you workers of evil. You go into Matthew towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and if there's anything that expresses Jesus' teaching clearly, I think all of Scripture is one. But if you have a lot of problems with whether or not the Bible is translated correctly or transmitted correctly, let's talk about it. But if you do, surely you agree that the Sermon on the Mount is a clear place to see what Jesus taught. He has his big final moments centered around this concept where he says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name. And do many mighty works in your name. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That says a couple of different things. In the first place, when you read it, there's a part of you that says, Whoa! If people who cast out demons and do many mighty works and prophesy in his name don't make it in, what hope do I have? Well, yeah, what hope do you have? But notice what he says. He calls them actually workers of lawlessness because they don't know him. That gospel moment, that Passover moment, the meal that we recognize as the Lord's Supper is a symbol not of righteous people declaring together and high-fiving each other over their righteousness. It's a declaration that you deserve to die. But that you can be saved, that you can be forgiven by knowing him. People who take the Lord's Supper are not good people. By taking the Lord's Supper, they declare that the only way they can see the face of God is if the Son of God bleeds for them. That's what we're saying. Definitely think it's possible for you to be way more cool and righteous than me. Why wouldn't I think that? I want to change. I hope I will. But being his is not about my righteousness. It's about his righteousness. It's about me choosing to just receive it. That's why he gets the glory. So...
then? What happens if you take it wrongly? Well, 1 Corinthians 11. This is part of what Josh reads when we do the Lord's Supper because we're just trying to remind everybody how serious this is. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Not my words. What the scripture says. Whoever eats or drinks, uh, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. The Apostle Paul thought that in the actual church in Corinth, historical church, look it up, you can go visit, the historic church in Corinth, people were getting physically ill and even dying for taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. He says that, it's in Scripture, the Holy Spirit says it, hey, we also believe that at Hope Church. Now, it's not on us to tell you whether you are or aren't. It's our job to walk you through Scripture and help you see yourself in light of Scripture. I have not yet, I don't know that I'll ever, come up and smack the elements out of somebody's hand. Be a bit of a distraction in that moment. But if I thought it was going to kill you, shouldn't I at least say something? You may think we're nutty. But that's what the scripture says, and we actually do believe it. Now, taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way, when it might make you weak or ill or even die, God is actually being merciful when he does that. Because those warnings are there to communicate a greater danger. Nobody's surprised by this, but you will. Whether you take the Lord's Supper right or wrong, you will die. The question is, once you die, are you His? So the warnings that He gives, the fact that some are getting weak and ill and even some have died, okay, great. If that physical problem helps to expose the real spiritual problem such that people get the real spiritual healing. Becoming, by faith, becoming His. Doesn't mean you're good. It means you're forgiven. Doesn't mean you're godly. It means you're known by God. Started talking about scary previews. Let me finish by talking about previews. I saw a preview last night for a movie called Dear Evan Hansen. I don't know anything about it except for the preview I saw last night, which in two and a half minutes communicated quite a bit. Apparently, it was also a Broadway play. But in the movie slash play, Evan Hansen is a kid with severe social anxieties who writes a letter to himself and this weird kind of moment happens with another kid. That other kid commits suicide. And there's this weird misunderstanding which the Evan kid allows to continue and grow. To the point that this whole community is making big decisions and doing crazy things based on this lie that this Evan kid is not clearing up. And the weight of it is breaking him down. And again, you know, 
two and a half minutes, so I don't understand this in like a deep way. I'm not telling you to go see this film. But in this preview, it's breaking him down, and through tears, he's speaking to his mother, played by Julianne Moore. And he says, you have no idea how broken I am. And she says back to him, I see you and I love you. I remember the preview because in that moment, atheistic Julianne Moore, I hope she comes to Christ. She's a declared atheist. Atheistic Julianne Moore proclaims the gospel. That's the gospel. I'm broken. Lord, I'm so broken. And he says, you have no idea how broken you are. But I see you, fully known, that's why I'm wearing my t-shirt today. I see you and I love you. Will you let me love you? It requires the humility of saying, I need you to die for me. But it also requires the faith of you saying, will you forgive me? Will you save me? But if he's yours, then when that day comes, death has lost its victory. It's lost its sting. And you stand before him and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. (laughs) You're not good. You're not faithful. Jesus is. You're found in him. So he says, well done. My beloved son, with whom I am well pleased, come and enter into my rest. Which you remember, which you celebrate when you take the Lord's Supper every first of the month with Hope Church. So, here's my prayer. Do you know him? Lord God and Heavenly Father, I pray right now that you would teach us to examine our hearts. To really and truly ask that question, do we know you? Because it's not about being the kind of person who can stand up around everybody else and come and take the Lord's Supper and, and seem like a Christian. Who cares? Who cares what we think? God, forgive us for being judgmental and proud, Lord. Help us to answer the question, do we know you? I pray, Father, that everything I've said that needs to get forgotten would get forgotten, Lord, but that the, the truth of the gospel, the red letters and the the scripture that we've taught this morning, that you have taught, I pray that it would land, Lord. That many would come to know you forever. In your holy name we pray. Amen.